Hi, and welcome back to Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam, and uh, this week uh, with me is, uh, well, MSNBC Fox. We're a, a commentator when it comes to Middle East issues and other things of progressive democracy. Joel Rubin, who I first met when he says I manhandled him at a at a candidate debate in Maryland. So you get to tell that story first. But before we do that, we'll take a break so we can pay the bills. We'll be right back. In this modern age of misinformation and deceit, Just Ask the Questions newsletter cuts through the BS and gets to the truth. With Brian's in-depth articles, columns, and exclusive content not released anywhere else. Get the scoop and stay in the know. Sign up for the Just Ask the Question newsletter now at substack.com slash JATQ podcast. Hi, I'm Brian Karam. This is Just Ask the Question. And with me is a man I've manhandled, uh, Joel Rubin. Joel, who is, uh, you, you can tell the story. You tell it far better than I do. So for those who, it was metaphorically done. <laughs> but well, you know, before you went to Playboy, there was the manhandling. And uh, <laughs> uh, thank you uh, for that, Brian. I uh, uh, I never, never knew Brian before I, I went up to a congressional debate panel. I was running uh, in, in this uh, Democratic primary to replace Chris Van Hollen in Maryland's 8th Congressional District. the At the time, it ended up being the single most expensive primary in the history of the United States. Uh, we had a, a couple uh, now congressmen in there. The winner overall was Jamie Raskin. That was when he got into Congress. Uh, number two was Kathleen Matthews. And uh, number three was David Trone, who now is in Congress over in the sixth congressional district, and then there were a bunch of never lived his entire life, but that's another story. Go ahead. Maybe that's you know. Well, he, he's not Doctor Oz from New Jersey, but yeah. you know, he, he he's definitely and he dumped thirteen million dollars into that primary, yep. uh, and and um and that might have been partially why it was so expensive, uh, partially. Yes, and that debate was wild, though. Brian Brian Karam made sure that all these big egos and these big competitors and people who love to talk uh are uh we were kept in line but it, it was so great the new york times came and they they did a profile of this race and they took a photo and i actually kept the photo and it's now on my twitter page on my profile i was sitting in the middle looking forward and it was like a jesus moment where everyone was looking at me leaning in and i was just looking forward so i have that photo on my twitter profile well, i gotta see that one you want to see it yeah is that the rockville one that was in Rockville. Yeah, that was exactly. the one where David Trump and it was the 
post who picked up on this and Trump got upset with me. He said it may have cost him the race, but he was yelling at you, man. Yeah, he was he not was, happy with you at all. Because I told him, you know, we had to keep things and he's pointing at his watch saying he has to go and not everyone had had their chance to speak. And so I said, well, if you want to leave, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't the, the George Bush, you know, looking at my watch, I'm bored here thing. No, but he definitely he wanted to speak. And, and, you know, the thing about these debates is, we're all talking to you and talking to the audience, but we're also talking to each other. And so we'd be looking at each other like, what the hell is going on? And I remember Kathleen and I looking at each other like, what is happening here? Like, it was just, it was like, it was like a, a, a full on, full body contact, visceral debate. And um, and uh, uh, my best friend from college was in the audience. I'd look out at him and he'd make this face like, I don't know. Like, this is wild. And it was Brian Karam. That made sure that it happened like that. It was great fun. It was great fun. It was I, I take no responsibility for that. <laughs> so anyway, but we're here today to talk about Donald Trump, Joe Biden, midterm elections. Uh, when oh, we yeah. Look at what's happened in the last few weeks with Trump and Biden. Is there an opening window? As you, you know, you deal with uh, the Democrats, your progressive voice for the Democrats. Um when you look at what's happening, do you see an opening window for uh, the uh, Democratic Party in, um, in the midterms? Or do you think it's a foregone conclusion that the Republicans will win the House and maybe lose the Senate? Conventional wisdom has. Conventional wisdom is, is pretty conventional, pretty boring. And uh, uh, we are not in boring, normal, conventional times. And, um, you know, if you look at the data, and you just look at the congressional districts, the 435, and who won those in 2020? It was Joe Biden, 226 to 209. So Biden carried a majority of the districts that will be represented this coming Congress after the after November. So he has a structural opportunity here that nobody in the party thought was going to be there before. Uh, all these fights about redistricting uh, uh, that were happening since the last census over the past half year year or so. Uh, were litigated in court and Democrats came out well. And so now the question is, is how are we going to win these districts? And it's true. There was a lag and, and Biden probably bottomed out a couple of months ago, if not you know, a month ago in terms of his ratings. But much of it was tied to base enthusiasm. And since the Dobbs decision to eradicate women's rights in this country uh, and, and tell them that they don't have body autonomy, uh, and you add that to now this this supercharged finish of this 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 last period in Congress where the Inflation Reduction Act, which basically achieved monumental multi-generational asks of the base on uh, prescription drug negotiations, on climate change, on a whole host of of uh, on on uh, taxes, uh, the wealthiest paying their fair share, really important base issues. That has turned people on to the idea that we can actually win this November. Uh, it's well, no that, longer that, a question, that question of is, we can't why are win. we always discussing and allowing the Republicans to frame an issue? The, we in the press are horrible at framing the issue. Don't start on us, we suck. But the, the, the Democrats' messaging, when you when you talk about them, I mean, at the end of the day, there are more registered Democrats than Republicans. And, and so why are we talking about 51% voter turnout being a good thing when what you really need is like 70? I mean, you, you if 
If yeah, the yeah. vote turns out the Republicans lose, it's that simple. They don't have the numbers. That's why they don't want the vote to turn out. Let's yeah. just first of all uh, make, make it very clear that uh, when the Democratic process works as it should, Democrats win. And um, and that's why the big lie still has longevity. But why are why are Republicans so good at getting pundits and, and serving as a sort of a pundit in these spaces at times? I get it. Right. Like there is a narrative that the pundit community wants to promote uh, this idea that uh, we have a president that must always be chopped down uh, is something that is very much normal in commentary. And then after Trump, it, it really, of course, it, it turbocharged. So Biden he can't get a break like ever. He can't get a break from no. any of the punditry at all. So even the fact that there's a transformative bill that just took place that is a, a massive investment in in uh, turning around the climate calamity that we're facing right now. Uh, it's like, okay, yeah, what did he do for us yesterday? I uh, didn't get this uh, this tax uh, giveaway or this. Or that. But I think stepping back, the point is, is that structurally Democrats now are mobilizing and turning on the energy in a way that we weren't a couple of months ago. And you can see it across the board. Uh, there's also- I can, I can honestly say that I've seen what I've seen is also the flip of that. As I've gone across the country these last two weeks, I can tell you that places that I saw even six months ago with these huge Donald Trump flags and you, you couldn't drive anywhere out in rural America without seeing a, a Ford F-150 with an American flag and a Trump flag driving up and down the street. I don't see any of that anymore. And in fact, when Donald Trump has spoken about, it's like it. Laura Ingraham even said on Fox, maybe it's time to turn the page. I think that you've got, there are people, I think the January 6th committee hearings have seeped into our conscience and our consciousness. And in line with everything else that's been going on, it's starting to get to be a whine, even for the, the heftiest Trumpers. So Look, I, when, when Alex Jones, as he did today, endorses Ron DeSantis because he can't handle Donald Trump's lion eyes, you know that there's a problem. And <laughs> that's that's a pretty big deal. Right. So and that, that well, that's great news for the Democrats, because Ron DeSantis is about as appealing as a day old dog turd. He, he turns out enthusiasm for Democrats like are, are, are in, in general, like Joe Lieberman did for us in 2000. Right. Yeah. Like, uh, <laughs> Yeah, and I would have loved to have had a Jewish vice president. Trust me, put up my Jewish hat there, my keeper. I would love it, but but no thanks. Uh, and, and and so going to your Trump point, spot on. Um, Trump is a lawbreaker, and he is getting nailed on violating, I don't know, the Espionage Act, uh, uh, cheating on his uh, taxes up in New York, trying to... Uh, overturn a legitimately certified democratic election in the state of Georgia. There's a lot of problem being associated with Donald Trump right now. And uh, I think maybe what you just described with, with these folks, Laura Ingram and others is recognizing, uh Oh, this ship is sinking and I don't want to go down with that. And that's, <laughs> Little that's do they that. realize the ship has already sunk. They're at sea with no life raft. But that will get later. <laughs> and, and and by the way, you can't associate yourself in the last second yeah. from the ship. I don't, the you ship know, for seven years, down. I was asleep. I had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> it's a tough room. I was an ugly child. You know. Yeah. So now, uh, Trump, and and it's interesting though because the the Trump phenomenon in some of these primaries. And I'm originally from Pittsburgh. Uh, look at what's happening up you in have Pennsylvania. My condolences. 
<laughs> uh, uh, I'm not going to ask what football team you like. It's just assume that it's the Cleveland Browns or no Baltimore. Green Bay Packers. Okay, well, um, I, now, I was thinking more of the pit uh, when I was thinking of Pittsburgh and Three Rivers Stadium. I was thinking of the Pirates. Oh, oh I was yeah. a big Red Machine fan for years, and so the Pirates and the Reds were were uh, <laughs> battling constantly. That I I can accept the condolences for that. <laughs> not the football team though. Yeah. Um, no, no, mm, but no, look, look to your point. I remember driving up in 2016 home to Pittsburgh from, from uh, Maryland and Trump signs everywhere, yep. everywhere. And I don't it, see it, any it, of that anymore. Not the same. And, and not when, the same. when you talk to people about Trump I'll, and I'll stop and talk to the same people, you know, that across country, Hey, last year you told me this, I'm back. Hey, what do you got for me? Fuck him. <laughs> I mean, gone from I love him to fuck him, and that, that's a that's a that's a ninety degree turn, baby. That that, that, that didn't take place. I, I'd say that that's a reversal of fortune. Yeah, I love him. Fuck him. <laughs> but you know, then this. So then the question is: is 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 these uh, these candidates that he has uh, saddled the Republican Party with are probably going to cost them the Senate? Going to your 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 yes. earlier question about the House. You look at the Senate, all right. So we've got uh, J.D. Vance, who's the ultimate in flip-flopper uh, falsehoodness, yes. right? Like a complete fabrication of a candidate at this stage. But he's the he's the guy, uh, apparently. And then you've got in Pennsylvania, Dr. Oz, who lives in New Jersey and is a citizen of a foreign country wanting to be in the United States Senate. Great. You couldn't write this. I swear to God, if I went to Hollywood with a script like this, they would laugh their ass off and go, what, what, what is it, parody? <laughs> what is this? No, this is serious really? drama. No, it's what is not. This? <laughs> so, you know, Mitch McConnell, God bless him, he may be stuck. He may be stuck <laughs> in the minority again and, and Trump doing him in again, you know? Trump did him in once already. Yep. By no rights should Georgia have gone to the Democrats, but it did because of Donald Trump. Yep. Um, you know, and I love John Ossoff and, and Raphael Warren. I, I've known Ossoff, John. Uh, oh, for but you're years. right. You're you're absolutely right. That's Donald Trump created that. And so I, when we look ahead, when we're when we're taking a look at midterms, um, and you've mentioned the Senate, let's let's look at the House. How do you do? You think there's a chance in hell that the Democrats can? hold on to or retain their majority in the House. I do. I really do. I think it's going to be much closer than people are expecting. And these, usually in the midterms, um, in, in the first term of a, of a presidency, the, the party in power loses 30 to 40 seats is what is typically projected. Right. Um, but, you know, the middle of the country, the middle voters, the independent voters are looking at what's happening in this Republican Party. And, and how they are so interested in literally taking away our rights, taking away women's rights, the right to control the decisions and about your that's own the body. Issue right there. I that, mean, I, that thing nobody that, wants that. I think when you and I, I I'm going to go one further than you. I think it's not only possible that Democrats retain control of the House. I think they will. Um, and I, I think that when you look at a bipartisan issue such as the Roe v. Wade reversal, this is one, you know, and for the first time, taking away a right that does right. not sit well with middle America at all. Anywhere. And that, that's not a partisan issue. No, it's nobody not. likes that's, that. That's, it's the biggest bipartisan issue in the country. So, 60, so 70 percent on that alone. And I think they miscalculated with it. 
And Absolutely. I think people who miscalculated, and I'm going to throw my own uh, faith under the bus because I have no faith in it. And that's the Catholic cult. That was the six conservative Catholics on, and they've been pushing for this through the Federalist Society. You know, this is no conspiracy. This is well known. This what was their strategy for the last 40 years to overturn <laughs> Roe v. Wade. And they finally got some dingus to appoint the right dingai to, to do it. And I think they've completely miscalculated where and, the and, country's at. And they're forcing the dogma on the rest of us. All right. I am a Jew. I'm a proud Jew. I am an American Jew. I have uh, deep roots and connection to Israel. My family came over from Europe. Religious freedom was a big part yeah. Mine too. I'm a proud so like, Jew. Like so like now, Jews, you know what Jews think about abortion? You have a right to it. But yes. Yeah. <laughs> so like, okay. And they went to the Torah. So now, they go so to the now I have to be, Catholics get to tell me, my three daughters, what to do with their own body when they're Jews? You have to understand. And this is one thing I've never been able to make a lot of people. And I had this discussion with others who, who ran for office in Montgomery County. I said, what you don't understand is that these people firmly believe that their religious freedom gives them the right to tell you what to do. Yeah. And if you don't follow what they tell you to do, then you're impinging upon their rights. It is the most okay. convoluted thinking. And I it dawned on me, I was coaching football at Avalon, a very uh, less than progressive school in, in Montgomery County. A, yeah. it, it was started by the people who left the Heights Opus Day, very conservative Catholic. And I had a conversation with uh, one of the headmasters there, one of the people who were in charge of the school. And he explained it to me in those terms. And I was like trying to break. I, finally, when I got my mind around, I was like, that's the absolute opposite of freedom. <laughs> that is it. And, and and so so here we are now, basically, with one religion being uh, dominant over others in the way the Supreme Court views how the world should work. What's next? Okay, gay marriage, forget Gone. about it. Mixed marriage, interracial marriage, whatever hell that's supposed to even mean. Back of the bus, I mean, buddy. Gone, right? Yeah. Like what rights are we allowed to have by a bunch of fanatics? So there we are. So that, and 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 going to the, the, your point about um, the, the votes and the, the public support, the one silver lining is, is that Alito, actually thinks that the public should have a say in this through our elected representatives. Well, fine, have at it. Three quarters of Americans, if not more, want abortion rights. So it's going to be hard. And uh, a lot of the progressive community is thinking about this organizing dynamic now at the state level. It's extremely hard. And there's a lot of gerrymandering across the country and a lot of state legislatures are, uh, are gerrymandered in order to maintain a stranglehold of the far right and that is going to be very hard. But that is where the fight is going to be. And that's where conservatives have run circles around us for decades at the state level uh, in winning and in pushing extreme laws that in some ways I bet they never thought they would actually have to worry about. Like there was a moral hazard here with Roe v. Wade. They could say, you know, we're going to fight against abortion forever and forever and forever, knowing full well that the rights wouldn't be taken away because the Supreme Court would be a, a backstop and they could fundraise. So now, holy be shit. careful for what you wish. Be careful for what you have. And now all of a sudden kids are kids, 16, 10 year olds are getting raped and impregnated and their moms are going to get sent to prison and Facebook is going to 
turnover records because they're looking for an abortion to survive because their uterus explodes. I mean, the thing is just, it's calamitous, right? And um, and so it's not a today fixed thing and it's depressing and their people are going to suffer because of it. But from a, a mobilization perspective for Democrats, this is not a partisan issue. This is an American issue, but only one party believes in the right to choose. The other does not. Which is and why I believe that in the fall, the Democrats may be pleasantly surprised if they, and there's my always condition, because I firmly maintain there are two parties in this country. One has no, no heart and one has no head. And that's the, and if the Democrats actually have a head for the fight and can message this correctly, I think it's a done deal. And I think 2022, people keep asking me, what are you going to think about 2024? 20? I, I go, let's get past 2022. Because this particular election, I think, will determine life in the United States for the next three decades, at least. And and uh, don't forget about Kansas, right? There's our and little there's the example. Line. Exactly. You, you, yeah, exactly where I was going. So you see the fact that in Kansas, they held on to the, it's this is not going to go well for the Republicans. I would almost predict that 10 years from now, there will be people who were once Republicans, and they look back fondly on, you know, the time when Eisenhower was a Republican, or, you know, a progressive like Teddy Roosevelt, or Abraham Lincoln, and they'll go, gee, that used to be a nice party. Oh, well, it doesn't exist anymore. So, well, Brian, you and I are old enough to remember when gay marriage was uh, a, a, a third rail of American politics, right? Yeah. Where if you said well, you were I remember when it, abortion was illegal. You know, and, and, and now and, it is again. And they make gay marriage legal and it flips overnight. And now the country overwhelmingly supports it. For years they weren't. Then they said yes. And now it's it's like it's settled law in the minds of Americans. And and that's the same thing with choice. Like it's settled. And 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 when states, when people start voting, it's gonna change dynamic. Politicians are always late to the game. The people are always <laughs> ahead of the politicians. And when they start seeing the way the votes are coming. They're going to change their tune. Yeah, absolutely. Well, absolutely. I, I, as we People go to break, vote. I'll just say, I, you know, we're going to take a short break and come back. But the I'll, last thing I'll add to that, and I'd love to get your your thoughts on it, is that at the end of the day, when I talk to most Americans, when I like when I travel, I make a point of talking to just random people, and I ask questions like, "Well, are you really upset about gay marriage?" And or you know these, and, the, and they go, "I don't give a shit." <laughs> Look, I'm not for it, but I don't care as long as it, you know, it, you know, it's none of my business. Most Americans are willing to accept their neighbor for who they are as long as their business isn't their, you know, their business. They And but I find that um, it's the division of fear and hatred and from politicians that try to drive that through, because if you ask some of these people they go, yeah, of course, I'm against gay marriage. Yes, of course, I'm against this. But you know what? It's none of my business. The politicians always forget that last part. Bingo. Bingo. And so we'll, you know, we'll see how it plays. And I'm, I'm hoping. Get the politicians out of our pants, I think yeah. is what I'm, what, oh, what I'm thinking. Yeah, I'm yeah. telling you. It's a tough <laughs> no, no, no. Oh. What are you, a Catholic priest? Hey. <laughs> anyway, we'll take it. For all you Catholics out there, that was a joke. Maybe not. Anyway, we'll be back right after this. Hey, you. Yeah, you. We're talking to you, and we need your help. 
seriously. As you probably know, independent journalism is a vital pillar of our democracy. Like everything else, it's not free. We're asking all longtime listeners of the show to help support us by becoming a member on Patreon. For the price of a latte, you can help guard democracy. Join us today at patreon.com slash J-A-T-Q podcast to help us keep bringing you the podcast you love and the facts you deserve. Hi, we're back. It's Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam, and with me is Joel Rubin, and we've been cracking wise on the 2022 election, the midterms, but I want to switch gears a little bit and just ask this question. How dangerous is Iran in foreign policy today? And your background in the Middle East, you're the guy to ask. Um, well, you know, uh, how do I put this? For the for the the viewers, the listeners out there, I've worked on Iran policy going back almost 15 years now uh, in the uh, the State Department, on Capitol Hill, uh, in, in uh, American domestic politics as well, and uh, with a lot related to Middle East work. So I, I've, I've been tracking this very closely for a number of years. And, and frankly, Iran is at its scariest place right now as we've ever seen regarding its nuclear program. It, uh, uh, courtesy Donald Trump, has nobody inspecting what it's doing in its nuclear facilities because Donald Trump took the United States out of the Obama negotiated nuclear deal, which actually stopped Iran's nuclear program in its tracks and rolled it back with verifiable inspections. That's all gone. So we don't know what Iran is really doing, except through our intelligence capabilities, but nothing through international monitoring like there should be. Uh, and uh, what we do know is that Iran is enriching up to 60 percent, which is getting close to weapons grade and stockpiling uh, and uh, has the knowledge and capacity that it didn't have five years ago before Trump got us out of the deal. So uh, it's a very frightening place because Iran, uh, as we just saw uh, in recent weeks, uh, inspires terrorism, be it Salman Rushdie, who was horribly attacked up in uh, upstate New York, uh, a foiled uh, assassination of John Bolton. Uh, by by the uh, Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. They uh, have destroyed the country of Syria. They are threatening neighbors in the region. We don't want Iran to have nuclear weapons. If there's one thing we've learned by watching Russia invade Ukraine, it's that bad actors in aggressive, hostile countries with nuclear weapons are really bad actors and really aggressive and very hard to contain. So right now, Iran doesn't have a nuclear program that is weaponized, and we want to keep it that way. And that's why there are negotiations right now happening, despite the Republicans and Donald Trump's best efforts to try to prevent us from actually solving this problem without starting a new Middle East war. Well, let me ask you this. as a, You mentioned Ukraine and Russia. Of course, bad actors are, are, are more, apt, more apt to act badly when they have a nuclear umbrella over their head because people are afraid of and countries are afraid of getting them to the point where they would launch their nuclear weapons. With Russia and the United States, it's been 50 or more years of mad, mutually assured destruction. And even with Putin in, there's a certain respect for that that remains. Maybe not the best, but at least some. But with Iran, with they have nuclear weapons, their, their conventional forces can easily, well, not easily, but, but can be overcome by other powers in that region. So doesn't that, when you talk about the real fear, it's the fear of using the nuclear weapons because their their conventional forces won't be able 
to, you know, cash a check that their body can, you know, or write a check their body can cash. They're going to be forced into a corner. Yes. Well, currently they don't have nuclear weapons. Right. If they and, did and, that. That's if the they theory. did. And, and, and yet they're still very aggressive in the region. They uh, uh, fund Hezbollah, which bombs uh, northern Israel periodically. They have backed Assad, who violently put down a rebellion there. They uh, uh, supported the Houthis in Yemen, which kept an ongoing uh, a half decade plus long, thousands dead. There are a lot of bad actors in the region. It's not all Iran that's to blame. Right. But what I'm getting at is that by these uh, uh, aggressive moves, they are facing militaries or paramilitaries through their proxies as well as directly that are causing conflict, but they feel strong enough to do that. The issue would be if they create a nuclear umbrella for themselves, they'll be like that on steroids. There will not be a fear of any attack against the Iranian homeland. There will not be uh, the ability. There will always be an extra level of calculation. So if we use the Putin example, uh, what country has said we will never fight Russia? The United States. Why? Because we don't we don't trust the guy. You know, he could literally pop off a nuke. And that has been in nuclear policy circles, an ongoing concern. Uh, when will he play the nuclear card? Will he? Will he drop a bomb as he's intimated into the heart of Europe if he wants to? We don't know. Is it worth the risk? Uh, clearly, decision makers have said no. So that's the thing with Iran. If Iran gets the bomb, it's that. But it's also yeah. worse. It then creates a cascading situation. What do the Emiratis do? What did the Saudis do? Uh, uh, what did the countries on the periphery of Iran uh, then say in response, they have to have some balance. Does Israel then declare its nuclear arsenal? Then basically it's like Ohio, Pennsylvania, Maryland, and New York all have nuclear weapons pointed at each other and they hate each other. That's yeah. basically what we're looking at. Yeah. And so the United States, our objective is to prevent that. <laughs> our goal is to make sure that we don't have a nuclear arms race in the Middle East and we don't have an aggressive Iran with nuclear backing. And that's why the route of a diplomatic uh, uh, engagement is so crucial. It's not a uh, kowtowing to Iran. It's Iran, you're the subject of, of our, our concern, and we are trying to make sure you never get that bond. And that's the program that we're in right now. And uh, again, I go back to the, the reality is, is that Iran's nuclear program was constrained and contained after the first nuclear agreement that Obama signed in 2015. And Republicans made it uh, a cost belly to get rid of that deal. And, and Trump did it in 2018. He just pulled out, much to the chagrin of every country in the world, period, including the Israelis and others who didn't like the nuclear deal, but were more afraid of what could happen getting out of the nuclear deal. Israeli security experts, and I've been in these discussions over the years, they will tell you that they, they, they do not... Uh, uh, want Iran to get benefits from a nuclear deal, but they really don't want there to not be not be a nuclear deal. That they felt that the deal was working in constraining Iran's nuclear program. Yeah, I get now, I, and now they're free. and I didn't want to bring uh, Russia. I bring up peripherally because you mentioned it at the beginning, but yeah, yeah, but Russia. It, it, when you look at Putin, what what mm -hmm. I'm alluding to there is to what you were talking about is what I'm concerned about and is that there would be a Putin-like person in Iran. That's th that's wh where the real problem would be is that type of volatile Smart. would that type of volatile character would create an environment where I think nuclear weapons would more likely be used because it's it then in Putin's case because we do have 
50 years of, of track record behind us. And we don't have that with, and Iran has shown no propensity of, of being, you know, of having any restraint. They do what they can when they can. So that's, yeah, I, I, I agree. I, I, I'm very concerned about the leadership of Iran. And yes. in fact, uh, uh, the team that negotiated with Obama was seen as a more centrist, moderate group of folks that they were booted out of office uh, half a year ago or so. And the new leader of Iran, Raisi, is a very hardline, extreme leader. Exactly. Uh, you know exactly where I was him. going. <laughs> but he is he's a tough nut. He's a tough nut. And um, uh, uh, yeah, no, this is this is this is high stakes stuff. And uh, Biden has a really hard decision to make about what he's going to give in a nuclear agreement with Iran. Do you think we can reach it. a nuclear agreement with Iran, Biden? We are on the cusp. The negotiations right now are basically back at capitals. The Europeans have been negotiating with the Iranians on our behalf because the Iranians don't want to meet with us, which is yeah, great. I wonder why. <laughs> they don't trust us uh, for some reason. They don't trust the Americans. Agreements. <laughs> we've we seen that that fat son of a bitch we know I mean, he's one, still there you'll, you'll love this one of the sticking points in the, in the negotiations that ron wants guarantees that we won't we won't like flip again in a couple of years we're like we can't guarantee that <laughs> <laughs> you see what we're dealing with donald trump yeah, you see what we're dealing with pal you don't want to meet with us we don't want to meet with us look we got to sit down anyway <laughs> oh man it's a headache and joe biden god bless that man he's so sane and normal and he's right in the middle of all of this thank god we yeah. have a sane normal well, person there. Biden, there is a blessing that people really don't oh get. god they, they take it understand. for granted this is not normal to have this kind of calm no, normal. But this, but this kind of guy is exactly, you know, people, I think when they look back and I'm in the middle of it now and you're in the middle of it now, I think when people look back, they'll see that Biden was actually the right guy at the right time. But, oh, but his time, I think, may be passing. <laughs> and I don't know about the 2024, but let's just get through 2022. But let's um, get through 2022. Yeah, that's but the last question on the Middle East before we go to break, uh, and, and that is one of the things that now I, I give Biden his praises for, for the Middle East. I hold him accountable for this. And I think it was still one of the most horrible mistakes made. And Trump made it. But uh, Biden promised to fix it and didn't. And that was the uh, the death of Jamal Khashoggi. And yeah. the fact that, you know, he, um, a journalist who lived in the United States, worked for a United States publication. If you've seen the documentaries, if you've seen the evidence, there's no doubt that MBS, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, had something to do with the man's death. Yeah. And no one's been held accountable in and and everyone, you know, admitted that there was some culpability. And Biden on the campaign trail promised one thing and delivered something else when he became president. How bad is this? Why was it done? We all know why it was done. But how bad that is a sticking point? And what kind of trouble will that be going forward? I know well, it'll be for journalists. It's going to it's gonna give every second-rate dictator in the world a, a, a pass on killing a journalist as long as they have some hooks into the United States, as long as there's some quid pro quo, we're done. And that's frightening to me. But as far as national policy. Um, and it, it, it is heart-wrenching and horrible. 
what happened to Jamal Khashoggi. And I, I remember it well from Washington, uh, not from the real world where this dismembering uh, of this, this uh, human being took place. But I remember the media coverage of it. I remember the policy, the political debates of it on Capitol Hill uh, and President Biden as a candidate. And then also saying we'll make Saudi Arabia a pariah. And he took a very strong line uh, against uh, its behavior and he was right to do it then. And it's one of these horrifying conundrums of governance, right? Um, he didn't choose to change his policy. The world changed all around us overnight. And this Russia-Ukraine uh, conflict can't say enough about how much it's impacted markets, oil markets, and uh, America's standing in the world. And so all of that came into play. And uh, there are a lot of good rationales and reasons for why the president went to Saudi Arabia. The, the technical reason is that the Gulf Cooperation Council meeting was there in Jeddah, and therefore he would go there because that's where it was and we needed to meet with our allies. And that was legitimate. Uh, but you know, at the end of the day, yes, it was it was unpleasant. Um, I don't say it legitimizes uh, uh, MBS completely because I think that the hammer was taken to him and his reputation by us and by Biden. Uh, but it, it, it was, it was, it was, it was hard to watch. It was really hard to watch um, the engagement because I think for Biden, it was hard uh, to do as well at the same time and, and, and going well, to Saudi Arabia. I guess and, that's and, my question. And, and that's pain. It was painful. Yeah. And, you know, I guess that's my question. Do you think that, and, and I'm, you know, I don't know. So I ask, but do you think it that the American president is, holding that card, but right. All right. We need you right now with Russia, but we haven't forgotten about Jamal. So after, after we no longer need you for Russia, there may be a price to pay. I mean, is that a possibility or yeah. are we just giving it up? I mean, the thing about like domestic politics and foreign affairs, what's different between the two is that in many, in many ways on international affairs, we don't really control what happens out there. No, we don't Things happen. Yeah. And, and it's not like we do here, but we at least have more agency here. Like it's our country. We have systems here. What happens over there to say over there, meaning outside of our borders is really determined by what is going on over there. And the U S this hubris that somehow we always get to tell everyone else how to behave and what to do. And we know what's best. You know, we can go into Iraq and turn it into a, a free democracy, you know, like that, right. Right. Like so easy, isn't it? And it's the same. And we've dynamic. been so successful at it in the past. And yeah, we, we were highly Iran. effective, right? <laughs> Iran yeah. was peaceful and was a democracy. Who we won that all up? But... You know who won the Iraq war? It's, it's Iran, well. right? And 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 uh, and the Cheneys of the world uh, yep. uh, still didn't apologize for that. But I'll I'll I'll, I'll move that to the side. <laughs> but but here but here's the thing. So I don't think it's a case closed, you know. And and I think that in these things, you know, there 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 are, are there are that's, rhythms. That's... Uh, but I think at this stage, this moment, uh, the president had to do what he had to do on behalf of the national interest, and that was to get to that meeting. And and we have seen gas prices go down by a dollar in the last month or so. That's a 20% drop. We are seeing America standing in the Middle East at a higher level now in terms of our relations. We were looking when I just do think it's important to say this. Uh, this is very, it's very, it's a very real politique, right? But when Biden came in 
China and Russia were killing it in the Middle East and the U.S. was being pushed out the door. And that is not the case now. All of these countries are looking at the Russian military performance and they're saying, we don't want that. <laughs> <laughs> later, <laughs> no, thank you. Later, check, please. <laughs> <laughs> Return to sender. We are not buying that equipment. Well, there's a kid in Nebraska who's no, making better, better weapons in his backyard. We'll take the Americans to block, Jack. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> Yet. Um, so, so you know, I, I think that there there is value for the country overall to have the United States in a strong position in the Middle East. Yeah. And, and that's where we are today. All right. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to go back to the midterms and APAC. Doo, doo, doo. So stick around. We'll be right back. Hey, Just Ask the Question podcast listeners. If you've got a second, head on over to Twitter and follow our official page, J-A-T-Q podcast. That's J-A-T-Q podcast. Again, that's at J-A-T-Q podcast. Hi, we're back. It's Just Ask the Question. I'm your host, Brian Karam, and with me is Joel Rubin. And we're going to go back, Joel, talking a little bit like we did at the beginning about the midterms. But there is one particular group that's had a, a big impact. I'd like your take on that, APAC. You want to talk a little bit about their sure. influence on the Democrats in this midterm election? Well, they've, they've played a little role here. Uh, APAC. A little? Uh, <laughs> They've they've put their dip their toes in the water. How, how many? How many millions? <laughs> About forty or so. Yeah, they became the so number million. one spending entity in the last cycle, I believe. Maybe only the NRA uh, outdid them, or 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 the 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 retired. I don't know. ARP maybe. Probably not even ARP. APAC just jumped in, and they jumped in with all fours times four times four times four. Um, they didn't have a money operation until December of last calendar year. They decided then that no longer were they going to be just a C4 advocacy lobbying organization and have uh, financial support from allied organizations. They were going to do it themselves. And they went out and they've endorsed candidates, the uh, majority uh, of whom uh, one could describe as the insurrectionists of uh, America uh, back to Congress in the Republican Party. And they've also played in Democratic primaries and they played heavy in about a dozen trying to knock out uh, progressive Democratic candidates and push in moderate Democratic candidates uh, on the Israel issue. And, and I kind of uh, uh, found it astonishing. They claimed a ton of credit for some of these wins that were actually structurally going to go in the direction they were going to go anyways. But APAC put $40 million into those races. One example is um, Andy Levin and Haley Stevens up in Michigan, where they put Andy is uh, Jewish, uh, former president of his synagogue. Uh, son of Sandy Levin, nephew of Carl Levin, an esteemed leading Jewish American political family. Uh, but the problem with him is that he strongly supports two-state solution between the Israelis and the Palestinians. So uh, can't have that. So um, uh, sarcasm here. So uh, no, I couldn't tell. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and that by the way, went over my head. Oh, how? Could <laughs> by the way, uh, let's remember the sitting prime minister of Israel said a lot. Said alongside President Joe Biden a few weeks ago in Jerusalem that he believes in a two-state solution for the Israelis and the Palestinians as the only way to guarantee Israel's survival as a Jewish democratic state. All right. So this is not like a crazy, uh, out of out of reach policy. A lot of Israelis 
believe in that, including the guy who runs the country. So APAC decided to go after Andy Levin. Uh, Andy, uh, if you talk to operatives, fire on them. Uh, well, it might, but I, just the one thing on the hardball politics of this is that there was a redistricting, so it became a difficult primary. Two members, right. Andy gets Haley Stevens running in a district that some operatives are frust- were frustrated. They f- they felt Andy should run in a different district. Thirty five percent of his old district was in the new one. Fifty five percent of Haley's old district was in the new one. Guess by how many points Haley won? How many? Twenty. Wow. So structurally. The same difference of her right. district versus his. Well, but, APAC, but, but APAC put in like four or five million bucks. The thing I've never understood about APAC putting in and, and wanting more moderate Democrats, how does that hurt the Democrats? Because th- there are plenty of people who would vote Democratic who might even be Republican if there were more moderate Democrats. That's I just don't. I mean, now I can understand it philosophically, I but I don't understand it by the numbers it, it, it was it's about pushing the democratic elected officials off of the, the progressive lane i get that but it doesn't help out the republicans <laughs> the, the republican party is in such disarray that the moderates that those that are left in the republican party would probably hightail it to the democrats in a heartbeat i think it's the most backward well, ass way to look at things i i look at these people and i just I, and this is just me joel yeah. as a reporter as a writer i keep looking at the people left in the republican party even the strategizer and i go you did everybody take the wrong asset at Woodstock because none of this helps your ass out. You're screwed, blued, and tattooed. <laughs> you you know you know Brian. It goes even deeper. Then I'll put on my my like okay. So there's the political hardball strategy that you're talking about here. Basically, they're playing in safe blue seats. So literally, nobody that they knock out in the primary is is uh, uh it, it, no, nobody who they support is going to somehow like up and an incumbent or flip the seat they're just trying to somehow purify the democratic party and intimidate progressives and all they ended up doing quite frankly was pissing off the entirety of the democratic party apparatus <laughs> yeah, and that's even better that's- and, and, and they pissed us off not just because of that but because they're willing to attack andy levin but they put no money into attacking marjorie taylor green who is like a pure, thorough anti-Semite, right? I'll just say it here. She plays on Gab. Gab is a platform, a den of anti-Semitic uh, activists who uh, one of their guys, Jewish cousins, in like 1949 there. And uh, and and I was just there with my family and we did a bat mitzvah there with my daughter. I speak Hebrew. Like I am, I am, <laughs> so, uh, you know, uh, uh, man, like, it, it's a killer. It's a great country. Killer country is not the right word to use. It's a great country, but 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 here's the deal. I got it. You're okay on this show. I'm, I'm kosher. I'm kosher. But here's the thing: if you want to grow, and I actually wrote an op-ed for the Jewish Daily for, the Forward about this. It's like if you want to grow the support for Israel in the country, you can't attack progressives and, and, and incessantly. And and the future, like of Dem- the Democrats, we vote three quarters vote Dem. Three quarters of American Jews vote Democrat. It's like clockwork. All right. And so if you're basically telling the, the next generation Democrats that they suck and you're telling them because like Andy Levin somehow is not good for the state of Israel, like what do you what's your strategy for growing support in America for Israel? 
What is that? There is no strategy. It's basically leaning on Marjorie Taylor Greene and insurrectionists and far-right candidates. That's all you have. And that's deeply offensive to the Jewish community here, which is facing anti-Semitism like never before. I have friends in the Jewish community who are conservative and vote Republican. And I'm going to say this publicly because I've said it before and I've busted his balls on it a few times. My lead guitar player, my band, local attorney, voted for Trump the first time. So, I mean, but now it's like with the actions that they've taken, they continue to antagonize even conservative members of the Jewish faith, conservative yeah. and, and, and moderates that are left. I, again, I, I ask again and again, what the hell is going on in the Republican party? It's like, it's, it's disintegrating before my very eyes. And even the, the Republican strategists seem to be hell bent on destroying the only two people left that I thought were trying to preserve the old Republican party. And I don't agree with them politically at all was Adam Kinzinger and and Liz. you know and Liz Cheney. They yeah. showed up and that January 6th committee hearing was pretty much run by them and counted on a lot of Republicans as witnesses. It was the last chance I thought the Republican Party had of purging themselves of the cancer that is Donald Trump. And what APAC shows me, what the results on uh, the midterm uh, on the, in a primary show me is that no, this Republican Party is hell bent on eating itself raw, and and that's almost like what the Democrats usually do. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I and and I think I think what we're looking at then is is an extreme rump uh, base of support in the Republican Party. But who are they appealing to beyond the rump base? Like the whole goal of democracy is to get more votes than your opponent, not to get less. And they are choosing strategies that only alienate voters. Don't don't uh, they don't only way it works is if they are successful in voter suppression. And and, and I I agree with you. And I think that going back, circling back to this APAC insertion, I think for the American Jewish community, if APAC had taken that massive quantity of money and really stood up for the American Jewish community writ large, gone after uh, far-right candidate to dabble in anti-Semitism. I already mentioned one, but there are many more of them. Uh, 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 attacked, uh, I don't know, uh, Rand Paul, for example, because he opposes aid to Israel. You and know, you know what? That's low-hanging fruit, too, brother. That's an easy one to shoot at. Is it? <laughs> Even his neighbor hates it. That's what I'm going. <laughs> you know, his neighbor kicked his ass. <laughs> so, I mean, look, seriously, but they didn't do that. And so now what the Democratic operative class is saying is that APAC Super PAC became a dark money funnel for far right Republican billionaires. So what they did is they put money into that Super PAC to attack far left anti-corporate candidates to get more uh, moderate Democrats through so that in a safe blue seat, it won't be a hard progressive coming out. So in, in many ways, the 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 interpretation now amongst the democratic political class is that apac super pac is more about protecting corporate power than it is about anything to do with israel so yes and you're right but damn it it just pisses you off <laughs> so and, and, and as an american jew who loves israel and has deep deep commitment to and have worked in this space it really frustrates me 
that in all those ads and all that $40 million, I don't think one penny was spent trying to convince Americans of support for Israel. They were all ads on non-Israel related issues. And that just shows the truth. You know, if you're going to raise money yeah. and engage in politics and not run on your issues, um, you know, you're not helping the cause. No, no, you're you're existing in a direct contrast to the stated cause. That's hypocrisy. That's what is so popular in the Republican Party these days and so popular in American politics, but particularly among the Trumps and the Trumpism and the DeSantis and the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the Lauren Bo, you know, Lauren Boberts and ad infinitum. It's like mm. it's all the people who were picked last for kickball got on the same team. And it's you know they they're still wearing their wedgies and they're still a, a bunch of damn nerds. But, you know, my <laughs> God, we got power and you all are just going to be me. You know, and, and, and I'll, I'll tell you what's really, really frustrating for me is that uh, these folks will ar argue that they are pro-Israel. Therefore, they're good with the Jews. And Donald Trump did that all the time. You know, I love Israel. I moved the embassy to Jerusalem. Therefore, that's, the Jews you know, should love it, me. No, and it's like, like, oh, my God. You're like, oh, like my best friend. Proud Boys. I, I, by the way, I, and I'm also for uh, uh, Black America. Some of my best friends are. It's the same thing. Oh, well, you know, it's, I can't tell you the number of times in the in the White House. You know, Donald Trump would allude to the fact that he was a friend of Israel because Jared Kirshner was on his staff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh, not a lot of credibility. Uh, <laughs> what, what does that mean? That <laughs> doesn't even mean anything. It doesn't mean anything. And it actually really doesn't. So, well, he so this said is, the word Jew, and Jared is Jewish, so maybe that's what he, you know, it just doesn't mean anything. Anyways, he went to the Republican Jewish Coalition meetings and said he didn't want our money. So he's clearly not an anti Semite. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note <laughs> listen man it's been a lot of fun you got to come back and talk some more Anytime, uh, Brian. yeah it's great having you the name of the uh, uh joel tell us where everybody where we can find you twitter joel martin rubin um a lot of language a lot of words but it's my it's my handle um you yeah go. you can find me at twitter and uh i i uh hope you follow and stay in touch and dm me if you have anything you want to talk about Yep, Unless and you're a white supremacist, don't on, DM me. You'll, you'll see him on a variety of networks. Ah, uh, there, that's better. Yeah, I, I'm a humble. I'm humble. No. <laughs> anyway, uh, but, but, uh, but, but, uh, uh, Brian, thank you. Keep up the keep up the the good fight on this. This is this is brilliant stuff. Well, thanks, man. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate you being here. The name of the show is Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam. We'll catch you next time. In this modern age of misinformation and deceit, Just Ask the Questions newsletter cuts through the BS and gets to the truth. With Brian's in-depth articles, columns, and exclusive content not found anywhere else. Get the scoop and stay in the know. Sign up for the Just Ask the Question newsletter now at substack.com slash J-A-T-Q podcast.